Okay, folks, we'd just like to gather in for a few moments. I'll tell you a few more things about the house. So number 24 in Road was, as I mentioned on the coast, where the McCartney lived from 1955 to 1964. And the place where they got together, John and Paul, to write their songs is the room downstairs at the front of the house. In fact, if you visit the house today, which you can do with the National Trust, you actually find photographs that were, uh, uh, were in there that were, pl- were taken at the time by Paul's brother Mike. And you can see the photographs on the wall of Paul and John playing the guitars. One of them, you can even see the words. So I saw her standing there very closely, very clearly on the paper in front of them. Many Lennon and McCartney songs were composed at this house, which makes it a place of great historic value. It's April 1960. John Lennon, Paul McCartney and George Harrison meet in the front room at Paul's home, 24th Lynn Road, Allerton, South Liverpool. Paul has borrowed a Grundig reel-to-reel tape recorder with a green eye, as he calls it, from his friend Charles Hodgson. The three guitarists are joined by Paul's brother Mike and John's art school friend Stuart Sutcliffe, here to contribute some rudimentary drumming and bass respectively. They sat in a circle around the Bakelite microphone, an orange cloth lead trailing back to the briefcase size recorder. Paul reached back to start the machine, needing two hands to work the large cumbersome buttons. Over the course of the afternoon, in the period before Mr McCartney returned home from work, the Beatles, as John and Stuart had christened them, drank and smoked tea, emptied the pantry of food, laughed, joked, goofed off, talked about girls, and every so often committed a Lennon-McCartney original to tape. The drums may have sounded like, in fact probably were, a cardboard box being hit with wooden spoons. The wayward bass of Stuart may have often been out of tune or playing the wrong note. He may have had to keep stopping to adjust his plectrum in his tense fingers or simply because his arm ached. But the three more accomplished musicians carried each performance with strident guitar work, forceful strumming and dexterous lead playing, all topped with confident, full-throated vocals. A few days later, John and Paul would make two appearances at the Fox and Hounds Cavisham, billed infamously as the Nurk Twins. From then, the Beatles worked consistently for another two months, playing some 20 engagements before July, and once again, Paul, just turned 18, could convince Charles Hodgson to borrow his Grundig. Sat in a circle, as before, a teapot and biscuit barrel close by, a cloud of smoke hovering over their heads, they played, sang, improvised parody songs, and captured a little bit of magic. Mike was still there, more audible than before, and Stuart was beginning to play something like actual bass lines, with something like actual technique. Although he still would find himself lost when a chord change came unexpectedly and broke his concentration. This was the band then that pestered local promoter Alan Williams for work. Just over a month later, with newly recruited drummer Pete Best, they played their first show at the Indra Club in the St Pauli district of Hamburg. The tapes remain in circulation, three copies are known to be in existence. All are compilations, all are different, so somehow Paul managed to get access to a second reel-to-reel to make copies. Although Paul referred to them as home demos, very bad quality, in later years, at the time they were sufficiently proud of them to share them with friends. Charles Hodgson retained a copy, which he sold at auction to Paul in 1995 as did Hamburg friends Astrid Kierkeer and Hans Walter Braun. 
Between all three tapes, although the Hodgson tapes haven't been made available, it is believed that at least 20 Lennon McCartney songs and instrumentals were recorded, all driven along by those three energetic guitars that must have helped them keep the band working through those very dispiriting times. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Eight, seven, this is roll six, 29, five, four, 29. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. You're not working without. It's like that like we're like we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs. But I've got like my quantum of tunes for the next 10 years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 14 I received an email, my first one, from a guy called Stephen Taylor, and he's very kindly allowed me to read it to you. Hello Nick, I discovered your podcast today and I just wanted to drop you a note of congratulations. As a Beatle obsessive, established 1973, I have a cassette of Let It Be from when the BBC broadcast the film in 1975. I set a microphone by the speaker and called out the song chords as they passed by. My long departed grandma is on there somewhere asking if I want a cup of tea during a particularly challenging chord sequence. Last summer the Nagra Reels popped up on YouTube. I was only a couple of days in when they disappeared. I always thought Jan 69 would make a great documentary. It has its characters, their struggles, a dramatic turn, a smattering of comedy and a big finish. I then realised that they filmed the bastard thing. I expect this year's release will be geared a little more towards entertainment than the psychodrama I would be edging toward. Anyway, you have created a strangely thrilling show and I have only listened to the three tours waiting for Macca to turn up. I just wanted to send you a note of encouragement for your efforts. I hope to be with you all the way to Jan 31st. Granular is great. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's really encouraging to hear some positive feedback. And... It's fascinating to hear everyone's story of their their experience and their relationship with the band and with this project and the film and the album. And I hope to hear more. We did it. We survived episode 13. If you're of a superstitious disposition, I'll give you a summary in a few seconds. But first, a podcast recommendation. One Sweet Dream. It's where the breakup series of the Another Kind of Mind podcast now resides. But there's so much more deep analysis in the discussions here and so much to learn. Okay, back to episode 13. 
It's still January 3rd, 1969. All four Beatles are present and ready to begin running back over the songs learned so far. John has to ask Mal for a copy of his lyrics dictated the previous day. While they're waiting, John and Paul fool around with the microphones making silly noises. John makes a quip about the enemy's alley cat and George begins to play the Harry Lyme theme. The rest of the band quickly join in and play a very respectable version. George now requests his own personal copy of the lyrics from his guitar case. While they wait, Paul and John bond over an improvised nonsense song. John starts singing, There's a Hole in the Hard Case, inspired perhaps by George's reference to his guitar case. Paul responds with the notorious lyric, Negro in Reserve. As we discussed, it's not appropriate these days, but at this point it's just words as sounds and very much of its time. Without warning, John starts, Don't Let Me Down. They get part of the way through this when the PA goes off. There seems to be a recurring electrical issue today. The rehearsal resumes and John now fumbles his words despite them being in front of him. In this performance, he tacks on lyrics taken from last year's Happiness is a Warm Gun. John stops to ask George if he'd consider using a fretless guitar on this song. George isn't keen on the idea saying it'd sound like a sitar. It's interesting to note that a kind of compromise between the sitar and the fretless guitar would be adopted by George in his solo career when his precise slide guitar playing would become his signature sound. A time check on the audio slate states it's now 12.05. Another run through Don't Let Me Down highlights that Paul's lyrics are wrong. But this is because John has dictated them wrongly as heard on the audio for January 2nd. After a disagreement of how to count the song in, a problem that will be solved by having a riff as an intro, they start another run through, but the PA goes off again. They try again, giving a complete performance, and Mal, who has been asked to time it, gives a timing of 3 minutes 40 seconds. Paul is astounded by this, thinking it was much shorter. Satisfied with progress on Don't Let Me Down, Paul leads the band into a rehearsal of the other song the Beatles have worked on yesterday, I've Got a Feeling. Once again, George needs his words out of his guitar case, presumably the one for Lucy, his Les Paul, as he's currently playing his Epiphone. For these rehearsals, we hear the band's voices through the Fender PA system rather than a direct feed, and it's quite distorted, as 60s PAs tended to be. I assume Peter Sutton and or Glyn Johns are trying different ways of recording the live sound. The feeds will switch around during these rehearsals and nothing recorded here sounds very pleasant. After a performance that was more of a refresher for everyone than anything else, Paul states that he considers the middle section of the song to be the weakest part. He suggests John sing harmony, but John is busy dictating the lyrics to his part of the song to Mal. When he finishes, he attempts the harmony suggested by Paul, but as he doesn't know the words and the notes are too high, he gives up rapidly. Even Paul realises this won't work and screams the final part of the middle section, just to add to the cacophony. John jokingly complains, he's not 18 anymore. Another run through and it's apparent that Ringo has his part completely worked out now. Reflecting on their attempts to reach high notes, Paul espouses a theory that they just need to lose their voices to get them back stronger. 
John just wants to get to the stage where singing Don't Let Me Down doesn't hurt his throat. It should be noted that all the Beatles are quite heavy smokers at this stage. The song is improving with rehearsal, but George's part still needs developing. Paul points out that usually this could be sorted out with overdubbing, but now the Beatles are stuck endlessly running through the song until these embellishments are perfected. George asks after road manager Kevin, and we find out he's running an errand uptown, as Mel puts it. John assumed he was working with Jackie Lomax, and Mel thinks it would be good for him to go on tour with a band. During this break, Paul speaks enthusiastically about Canned Heat's Going Up the Country single, proving that he did watch last night's Top of the Pops. George talks disparagingly about the big guy on guitar who can't play guitar. This is either a reference to Al Wilson's open tuning style, or he's confused him with Bob the Bear Height, Ken Heat's other singer. With that, there's an edit, and we can rejoin the Beatles now for a trip down memory lane. Tape cuts. We assume John starts the one after 909 without prompting, so we can't tell if this was discussed. Written by John sometime between 1957 and 1959, the one after 909 is quite unique among Beatles songs in that it fitted well with the early skiffle sound of the Quarrymen and managed to sound contemporary in the late 60s revivalist period of Canned Heat, Creedence Clearwater Revival and the band. In the key of B major, it leans heavily on the blues influence to its chord changes and its melody and harmony lines pit minor notes against major chords in the blues tradition. The 1-4-5 classic blues chord structure is augmented by a C-sharp chord in the bridge section. Structurally, it has two simple parts, a verse chorus with the hook in it, sung by John and Paul in harmony, followed by a bridge section of equal length sung just by John. It also acts as a precursor to Paul's I Saw Her Standing There by staying on its opening one chord for an extended number of bars before changing. Lyrically, it's clear part of the reason the Beatles didn't release this song early is the ambiguous plotline. It's about a girl leaving a guy who begs her not to go, then decides he's going with her, but then gets the train time wrong. At least that's one interpretation. The story of the song is entirely being guided by whatever rhymes. That said, the Beatles have great fun with this tune and that enthusiasm comes across in all performances. It's well known to the band, having been recorded twice in 1960 at Paul's house in 4th Lim Road. It was reworked in rehearsals at the Cavern, taped in 1962, and three takes were recorded in 1963 at EMI before being abandoned. Oddly, in one of those takes, the band elected to play a straight 12-bar blues under George's guitar solo instead of letting him play over the chords to the verse section. This seems to have got stuck in John's head as he struggles to remember when to come back in during these rehearsals and several to come. John struggles with what to play through the solo. He does this at other times in the 1963 recording too. Oh. Okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. Should do it. Oh, yeah. George says we should do it. You can just about hear John say, "I wrote it when I was about 14." That's great. That's great. 
Everyone is complimentary, including Michael Lindsay Hogg. But the snow is so great. What a move, honey. I'm traveling on that line. Move on, move on. Come on, baby. Don't be cold as I. You're only fooling around. You're only fooling around with me. Yeah. Well, should we just practice that for a bit? Yeah. Or maybe we should just do it without practicing. You know, practicing with fucking up. Yeah, right. George thinks over-rehearsing this would fuck it up. It's a strange attitude considering they'll rehearse other songs to death. No, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll just know where we're going. We won't sort of arrange it or anything, that's it. We just have, uh, oh, you know, two uh, verses, bridge, third John to start another early Lennon McCartney original. This performance is on the Let It Be Naked bonus disc because I know you love me so. Here's something not heard for a very long time. George's Carl Perkins, Chet Atkins, rockabilly style guitar. runs out. Because I Know You Love Me So, Mark Lewison dates this song to January 1958. There's a theory that the song is a close relation to Paul's I Lost My Little Girl, also unreleased, because it has a similar opening line. According to Lewison, this song was never performed by the Quarrymen, but its authors remember it remarkably well. Uh, continuation of Roll 36, take one. Another run-through of the one after 909, already improved, even if the balance is a bit vocal-heavy. Paul sings the verse to indicate to John what to play in the solo. There's definitely an experiment going on with the different sound feeds. Paul finally realises what the song was about. I mean, so she's on a train. Yes. And he sort of... He goes to the station. station. <laughs> but he goes back and finds it was the wrong number. So... Wrong location. The rhyme with station, you know. <laughs> That's great that you... Mail, railman said you got the wrong location. Well... Great. Our kids have been saying you should do that for years. Yeah, I mean, so what, you know... You know, Mike, you don't understand about these things. Our kid is Liverpudlian slang referring to Paul's brother, Michael McCartney. Yeah, because the words... Yeah. yeah, most people just don't give a shit what the words are about. Yeah, right. As long as it's, you know, it's popping along. George is a bit more sweary today. Yeah. <laughs> 
was John almost starting Besame Mucho, another old Beatles live staple. You don't you forget that in sophisticated, I think they're sophisticated enough. That one after nine, nine location it was station. Like, we always thought it wasn't finished, now, Yeah. Couldn't be bothered finishing it. Pete Chopin was saying about. Paul says, Pete Shotton, John's old school friend, mentions another early song. It would have been interesting to have done a few of these in the live show. Very little is known about this song, and this is the only performance. As Paul starts it, it's assumed that it's his composition. Lewison names it, if tomorrow ever comes, and implies that it dates from 1958, but this is pretty much speculation. A pretty girl is like a macaroni. It's a parody of Irving Berlin's A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. George plays the intro to Thinking of Linking. Thinking of Linking, as Paul tells it, was inspired by a cinema commercial for Link Furniture, which had the strap line, Are You Thinking of Linking? Paul recalls writing it at the front window of his fourth Lynn Road home, and it probably dates from 1957, before George joined the Quarrymen, though he was present for Paul's cinema lightbulb moment. George plays the intro here, as he will in the Beatles anthology bonus feature in 1995. Another original, Won't You Please Say Goodbye. you please say goodbye there's a very good website on early beatles songs oddly enough called earlybeatlessongs.weebly.com the song is believed to date from 1962 the clue being john's remark here that the song was inspired by sam cook's bring it on home to me also of note is its similarity to a later beatles song babies in black George is reminded of Bring It On Home To Me. John says that's where he got it from. This inspires them to give a slow but reverential performance. Bring It On Home To Me is a 1962 hit by Sam Cooke actually first released as the B-side to Having a Party, and as such would have instantly appealed to the Beatles, always on the lookout for material that no one else was covering. Continuing in a similar vein, George starts Hitchhike, a hit for Marvin Gaye. Hitchhike is another 1962 song, released on the Tamla label and co-written and sang by Marvin Gaye, another Beatle favourite. 
It's Gay's original that George is thinking of here and not one of the many cover versions by artists, including the Rolling Stones. Much like playing sport, playing music is exactly that, playing. It's fun to do, it's not all about work. George, perhaps inspired by the feel of hitchhike, steers the band into the 1964 B-side of Can't Buy Me Love, You Can't Do That. Although they don't know this as well as the cover version, strangely. George sings the backing vocals in a mock Liverpool accent. Interesting insight here. Helter Skelter, the title at least, seems to have been inspired by the 1965 single by the Olympics called Hully Gully, and is seemingly connected in his and George's mind to the song Hippie Hippie Shake. The Hippie Hippie Shake, first released by Chan Romero in 1959, the most famous cover version of this song is by Liverpool group The Swinging Blue Jeans in 1963. However, the song had been part of the Beatles' live set much earlier. It featured in their Star Club performance, taped in December 1962, and was performed on BBC Radio in March 1963. Five years ago, Paul is putting an extra beat in the section coming out of the bridge back to the verse. I'm not sure where this idea has come from. It may be spontaneous, but it sounds like a contemporary update, like something the vanilla fudge would do. George suggests rehearsing two of us before lunch. Paul is sceptical that they can do this quickly. Interesting that George is steering the band back into work, despite having diverted them for most of the afternoon with oldies. There's an in-joke there between John and Paul, lovely Tunia, that John does in a kind of mock Welsh accent. Paul recalls a conversation with Glyn Johns, not caught on tape, where he suggests playing the song on acoustic guitars. John doesn't see the point rehearsing it on the current setup if that's what Paul wants. Paul suggests one acoustic, even thinking of a scenario of doing an announcement while changing guitars. 
plane. It might be, it might be yeah. sort of interesting. Well, on the other hand, it's a bit like... Yeah, uh, well, we'll see how it goes, bit. you know. Well, I mean, you could have one acoustic. One acoustic. It's a bit, it's a bit that... And now, while George swaps his hand, we'd like to... Yeah, but I mean, we don't have to worry about that. No, no. I think it's just to look like we're up the cabin, you know. Sure. You know, we're just, oh, just getting the guitar now. Paul concedes that they'll try it this way for now. Of course, Glyn's suggestion is how it will eventually end up on the release version. And with the Beatles about to start work on two of us, we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.